notice everyone who's come out this morning, and I think we do have visitors, so we're glad you're here. We want you to come back and be with us every time you can. This morning, um, in fact today, on the last Sunday of each quarter, we do our wrap-up, and so this morning I'm going to be doing sort of a wrap-up, which is kind of, this morning, will be a summation of what we've talked about during the quarter, but more than that, I want to use this lesson to introduce some ideas and thoughts, and I'll stress that as I go through it, um, some ideas and thoughts that we're going to be talking about in the next quarter. So it's uh, kind of a wrap-up. And then on the Sunday evening of each quarter, we do, as we said earlier, our wrap-up singing. And Wes has prepared a, a list of songs that really coincide with the theme uh, throughout this quarter. And so we'll be doing that at 4 o'clock. Now, as we were talking about earlier, we do have a singing practice. And I had scheduled it for today. Two things caused me to change that. One, I had forgotten totally we were doing the wrap-up singing. So we've been doing the singing and the singing practice right after, and I figured we, our voices would be given out. But also, Edward, who normally conducts that, uh, is a little under the weather, so I thought I'd give him a break too. So that's why I rolled it forward to uh, the end of April. But uh, nonetheless, I do want to mention a couple of other things before I get into the lesson, or one other thing before I get into the lesson this morning. And that is uh, to echo what uh, Jeremy was saying earlier about the Mommy and Me class. You noticed in the bulletin uh, last Sunday that I had an article about that. If you want more information, please see Hannah Jinks or Edward or Wes, and uh, they'll be glad to fill you in on some of the finer details. But those of you with young children, um, this is a great new class that's starting, and uh, really encourage you to be part of that. Uh, bring out your young children and join in that class, you moms and your young children, and I'm sure that you'll get a lot out of that. So without any further delay, let's get into the lesson. Let's start our wrap-up as we talk about order in the Lord's church. I hope. There we go. Order in the Lord's church. I hope. <laughs> there we go. All right. Maybe this thing will catch up with me. The Lord's church. We said this. I said this in the very first lesson that I did this quarter. The Lord's Church is comprised of brethren who come from all kinds of different backgrounds. This church, in one sense, is one of the most unique I've ever been part of because it really echoes that sentiment. There are mixtures here of people from many different social, ethnic, educational, religious backgrounds. You know, West grew up in the church, as we commonly say. I came from... Uh, denominational background, a lot of you did, but some of you grew up in the church as well. So we have a real mixture there. And yet we have all come together. We are all united in faith. And we're going to talk a lot this coming quarter about truth in the Lord's church or the faith that we're part of. We just sang a song that talked about one Lord, one faith, etc. And so we're going to really emphasize that in the coming quarter. Members of the Lord's Church are joined together as a body. Later in the year, we're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about the body of the church. The collective is a term you'll hear me use in the latter six months of, of this year quite a bit. But the collective, meaning we've been collected by God together. And uh, certainly even in this congregation, God has set us in this congregation, collected us together. But we are, as a body, built upon the foundation that was laid by the apostles and prophets. Jesus himself is that foundation, the chief cornerstone. And that brings order. And so ordered, 
Churches can be identified by their teaching, by their practices. Now, a lot of times people in the world today identify churches by all kinds of things. That church has this program going on, or that thing that I like, or whatever. But the Lord's church should be identified, and can be, by the teachings and practices within its, the walls of its building, such as we have here. God, as we've stressed from 1 Corinthians 14, does not author confusion, as the King James says, or literally disorder. What is found in one of his congregations, and I stress that, because if it is still his congregation, if it still has its lampstand or candlestick, if it has not been spewed or vomited out of his mouth, as he graphically puts it himself in Revelation 3, then it is still one of his congregations, and what is found in one is found in all. We are united. Now, we don't have a headquarters anywhere. Sometimes I get asked that question as I meet different people around, and they'll ask us about you know, the church that I'm part of, and they'll ask about the rules that govern it, the bylaws, you know, perhaps even they may not use the term creed, but they'll talk about those things. And when I begin to describe that, no, we're an independent congregation, we are someone who does not have a headquarters directing us. There is no body of people anywhere, men or men and women, who direct this church. Only the Lord. People find that a little different. That's kind of, you know, not what most people are used to. But when you find the Lord's congregation, if you find one, or you travel across the country or around the world, you will find the same thing. Now, it may look a little different. The building may look a little different. The people may dress a little differently or whatever. But what you find in one, you find in all. As in all the churches of the saints, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 33. So we speak when we talk of order in the Lord's church, or when we talk about the Lord's church. We speak of what a person should find. And what you must find, if indeed a church is ordered by Christ. And so that's why we talk, we're talking about these things this year. Because we want to make sure that we look to the Word of God and we say, what does God say about His church? And are we indeed doing that? And we're going to get into a number of things over the next nine months. Not just in general talking about the order that is supposed to be there, but being very specific as we look at different things within it. And we're going to talk about what the Lord really mandates, demands, commands. We talked about last Sunday morning that this is a monarchy. We're not a democracy. We don't come together in business meetings or get together after a lot of you leave and, you know, huddle in a corner somewhere and say, what are we going to do? Or what do you like? Or what do you want? No, this is a monarchy. We look to the pages of the Word of God and we say, what does the king say? And try to the best of our ability to follow that. Because that is the order given by God. So things being done decently... What does that mean? We, we use that phrase a lot of times. I ask it in the bulletin again. What does it mean to do things decently and in order? Well, the terms that are used in verse 40 of 1 Corinthians 14, decently means you do it properly. Or literally, we don't use this term a lot, we use decorum a lot. Proper decorum. Well, that's the term there. It, it actually is an adverb, but it means to do it decorously or to use proper decorum, and to do it in order. And order means exactly what you would think. Just like when you place an order, you want to get what you want. When someone orders someone, when a commander in, in the army orders subordinates to do something, 
They want exactly what they want. They want orders to be followed. Well, Jesus is the commander. And so doing things decently, decorously, and in order. And that's what identifies a local church of Jesus Christ. We speak of how to achieve that. And we speak, of course, how to maintain that. In John 17, Jesus prayed something that a lot of times people believe is not possible. Because Jesus prayed for his followers and for all those who would believe even in the future. And we're 2,000 years in the future. But he prayed for them all to be one. And that there be real unity. Not just unifying, if you remember that lesson from the beginning of the quarter, where I said, not just unifying, where we say that, you know, we kind of get lip service to the idea of unity, but we're really not united. Not just that we walk into these walls as we are this morning, and that one that sits over there, I'm divided from that person in every respect. I don't like them, I don't believe what they do, they don't live like I do, I don't live like they do. Jesus did not pray for that. Jesus prayed for his followers to be one. That they all may be one, he said, even as we, Father, as he was praying to the Father. Even as we, you and me, you and I, we are one. Now, we might ask the question, is that practical? A lot of people do. And I've been through schooling where that question was posed. How practical is that? How pragmatic is that? Is that even possible? And a lot of people have the idea that no, it is not possible. And so terminology, man has come up with terminology that kind of sounds good. We'll give lip service to unity. And so people will say we have to agree to disagree. We can all be one as long as we're all one in this idea that we're not going to be one. (laughs) We agree to disagree. We will achieve unity in diversity. And when I was in school and and I I first heard that phrase, unity and diversity, you know me, you guys, a lot of you do, and so you you know how I am. So I immediately spoke up and I said, so you mean we need to have unity and disunity? And, of course, laugh and everything. And the professor was like, no, diversity. Respecting the fact that we all believe different things and we all have different ideas. And I said, then where's the unity? And the truth is, that is not unity. The truth is, we may live in a democracy, and a lot of times we want to make the church be the same kind of governing system that we live in in our country. I want my rights. I want my way. I want to do things as I want to do them. And I'll allow you to do that as long as you allow me to do that. That's not what the church is. The church is we unite on one major idea, and that is... We want to do what Jesus wants done. And to the best of our ability, we're going to each contribute. We'll talk about that in a second. But we're going to contribute toward that end. Real order. Real unity. That's what the Lord wants. And so order is achieved by those who really unite. To obey the truth. And we're going to talk a lot about truth. How we got it. How we can know it how we can depend on it, and all of that kind of thing in this next quarter. But those who unite to obey the truth, they agree, and really they should perfectly agree. They are of one mind and one judgment respecting that. Now a person says, well, what does that really mean? Well, that means that I acknowledge, I accept that we don't all believe 100% of the same thing. And that's for a number of different reasons. 
For one thing, I've been a Christian 40 years as of February 6th this year. Some of you in this room have been a Christian, you know, a year, two years. Some of us have had advantages. You know, when I became a Christian at age 17, 40 years ago, I knew nothing. And I mean that. I knew a smattering of Bible stories. I knew the way that my denomination did things. But as far as the Word of God was concerned, I knew nothing. And as a 17-year-old, nearly 18 years old, I looked around me and I saw other 17, 18-year-olds who had grown up in the church. You know, my good friend Jeff Smelser down in Exton, Pennsylvania, he was about what is he, 10, 11 months older than I am? And he'd grown up in the church and he knew much, much more than I did. We don't all come from the same background. And we have to respect that. And I may not understand something that you may understand. And that's where it comes in. Each one of us contributes to the other. But you know what we agree on? Whether I was standing there at age 17 and Jeff was 18... And I knew nothing, and and as far as I was concerned, he knew everything. Whether we were standing there, I knew this, that we were totally united in this idea. The Bible is right. I can be wrong, you can be wrong, but this is right. And if we want to answer a question, let's go to the Word of God. Now, you may have more ability to turn to the Word of God and know where the answers are found than I do. That's fine. I may know something you don't. And when we unite on that idea, when we respect that Jesus has the answer, the Bible is the truth, then we're united. And so we've talked about the foundation of Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. And the fact that, if we look at 1 Peter chapter 2, we are living stones built upon the foundation of Jesus. We've talked about the foundation. That is, Jesus is the one upon whom. This church is built. That He is the beginning of the structure. That it starts with Jesus. You know, the Bible in Hebrews 12 and the King James calls Him the author and finisher of our faith. The beginning and the end of it. But it starts with Him. On whom this building, not this building of wood and brick and so forth stands, but this building meaning you and me, all of us as living stones, The one upon whom that's built. The support upon which it rests. It provides stability to this church. It provides continuity. You know, this church has been around a long time. Since the early 50s. You know, by some, uh, some accounts. But late 50s by everyone's account. And people have come and gone. Many members have grown older and died. And yet the church continues because it does not depend on any one person or group of people or any preacher. It depends on Jesus. And as long as whoever is here at the present time looks to Jesus as the foundation, it will go on as the church. And it will not need any one of us or group of us to continue. That Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Boy, that came up there fast, so I worked hard on this. Let's get it right. The chief cornerstone. And what does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus is the one according to whom the church is built. Now, that's different. There's a nuance of difference there. He's the foundation. 
We are all built on top of Him, as it were, built upon Him. But He's also the chief cornerstone. He's the perfect living stone in the church. I'm not. And no one here is. But Jesus is. Jesus is the perfect stone. That is, Jesus, we can look to Him and we can find everything we need for this church to be built. Every thing we need to pattern each stone by. I need to be like Jesus. And you need to be not like Michael, but like Jesus. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. It gives the structure its shape. It ensures that it's square, it's true, it's right, it's straight. It guides the building of the church. It provides the specs. It's the standard to go by. And when we begin to look this next quarter at the truth, we will talk about how Jesus handed down exact specifications and taught that each generation was to hand that down. Not what it had done, not what it had accomplished, not all of those kinds of things, but to hand down those exact specifications, generation by generation. Order is maintained by doing that. And it falls to each member. And so you know, I've talked about this. It falls to each member of the church to take responsibility for all things that they be done decently and in order. Each member is directly responsible not to each other, not to any group of people, certainly not to the preacher or the two preachers here, but each member is responsible directly to Jesus. We are all priests, and each priest is directly responsible to the high priest, and that is Jesus. Each elder, if we, and I hope that we do someday, have elders, but each elder will be directly responsible to Jesus, to his rule. As Peter called him, if you're in the book of 1 Peter, look over at chapter 5 and notice Peter himself, an elder, referred to Jesus as the chief shepherd. So when we talk about the rule, when we talk about what governs the church, we just simply talk about Jesus, His authority. Each teacher, each member is directly responsible to Jesus. There are a lot of false concepts out there. You saw that I put this up a couple of times through the quarters, but let's say it again, through the quarter, let's say it again. The excuse that a lot of people use for straying from the Lord's order. I remember sitting in a Bible study on a Sunday night, Montel remembers this because when she came along, we were still having this thing. We had it for years. But as we sat there, I was talking to a member of the church that I had known a long time. And we were talking about the congregation where he was and some decisions that had been made by the elders to really go astray. And what he was saying was, "I, you know, I know this isn't right. I feel terrible about what we're doing, but they're the elders. And God tells us to follow everything the elders say do, doesn't he? Obey the rule of the elders. Obey the pastors. Or, in a denominational sense, the preacher becomes the single pastor. Obey him regardless. Now, is that what Scripture teaches? The answer is no. It does not. It teaches that you respect those in that authority and leadership. It teaches that you are very careful, 1 Timothy 5. We'll talk more about that in the next quarter. You are very careful. You don't just jump up and make wild accusations and try to remove them, you know, and so forth. It teaches that. 
But it also teaches you that you are responsible to look in the pages of the Word of God, and if Michael is standing up there preaching something that is violating what Jesus said, you don't follow him regardless. You follow Jesus. And if elders are doing that, you go to the elders and you respectfully have an audience with the elders and you say, you know, I respect you, but I respect Jesus. The excuse that exists out there in the world many times is when someone is in that position, you just do what they say regardless, without question. Sometimes what's followed out in, or what is followed in a congregation out in the world, let's just say it like that, is the way we have always done it. So someone begins to say, you know what, the Bible says so and so, but we've always done it this way. And when you do that, what happens is you lose sight of why you've always done whatever it is you do. You remember the story that I told a long time ago? Some of you will remember this. You remember the story I told about the, the man that came to his wife on the holiday and watched her whack off the end of the ham to put it into the pan? Remember that? A lot of you do, I know, because he loved that story. She whacks off the end of the ham, and into the garbage you go. And the guy said, why do you whack off the end of the ham? She said, that's the way I've always done it. He's like, but why? He said, that's, she said, that's the way you do it. And finally, after talking to her, he finally got her to admit she did it because her mother did it that way. Well, he went to the mother. He said, I'm getting to the bottom of this. So he went to the mother, and he said, hey, Mom... Why do we whack off the end of the ham and pitch it? So she said eventually the same thing. Well, I do it that way because my mother told me to do it that way. So he looked at both of them and he said, We are getting to the bottom of this today. Grandma, why do you whack off the end of the ham and throw it in the garbage? She said, I whack off the end of the ham and throw it in the garbage because my pan is too small. You see, when you do things the way you've always done them without question, what happens is you lose sight of why you do something. And if you can do that without reason from the Word of God, then someone else comes along and says, well, if you can do that, then I can do this. And then what happens is the church gets further and further and further away from the church. Jesus Christ is the foundation, and Jesus is the chief cornerstone, and we are built upon that foundation and according to that chief cornerstone. And it's our responsibility. We look at passages like 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 4 through 7 that quote these passages about Jesus. We look at Ephesians 2 and verses 20 and 21 about a habitation for God, a home for God that is built upon a foundation laid by the apostles and prophets, but how it teaches us that it hinges on our following that. Exactly. We look at Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16, and we see the fact that each of us has different abilities. Each of us has different roles to play. And we accept that. I, I do this, but I don't do that. God gave me the ability to do this, but He gave you the ability to do that. But we come together as various joints in a body, and all of us together contribute to the health of the whole. Each Christian is a living stone built upon Jesus, equally so. Jesus is the foundation. He's the chief cornerstone. And all the stones together in the Lord 
grow into God's temple, His habitation. The integrity of any stone structure will depend on every stone in that structure being fitly framed together. That is, it all hinges on that. You know, I'm sure you've all played... What is that game? I almost had it there. Is it Jenga? Jenga? Well, you, know, you guys know what I'm talking about. You pull out your Jenga? Okay, you pull out the different... And, and it all falls down. It depends on each stone, the integrity of each person, to look not to every other stone and compare themselves by themselves. Or to say, I'm bigger than you are. I'm better than you. I'm more important than you are. No, but every stone to look to Jesus. It depends on every joint, every ligament, literally, in the original in Ephesians 4. That is an integral part of the body, necessary to its integrity. You know, if you have joint pain, you realize how it affects the whole body. It is one joint, sure, but it affects your whole body. You depend on every joint, and you depend on its maturity, its function. It's building up its unity, its knowledge. You depend on the fact that each joint grows as they are supposed to grow, does what they're supposed to do, acts and functions as God would have them to do that. It all hinges on that for this church to continue to be what the Lord wants. And furthermore, we've received the kingdom from God, a blessing, a great kingdom from God. And it depends upon us to accept that responsibility, just like we, we talked about here last week, to accept the responsibility to conduct ourselves as God would have us do. Or else, the Lord will remove us from being a church of His. We say it like this. Jesus is the foundation and cornerstone of the church. And that ensures a timeless institution. When Jesus returns, and He could today, and He could a million years from now, but when He returns, there will be a church. If there is a God, and I know there is, there will be a church somewhere on this earth. Faithful people still following exactly what God said to do. He promises that. But that doesn't mean that will be here. That's up to us. That's up to us to serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. That's up to us to maintain that order. That's up to us to do things for the right reason and know why we do them. Not just whack off the end of the ham because somebody somewhere back there did that. To do what God says do because the king says do it. And so God says let us serve him. And be acceptable when we do. And reverence Him. And have fear about what we do. And that we all accept the responsibility to maintain the order that God has given. That we do things decently and in order. Because our God is a consuming fire. And will be such if we do not do that. Now finally, let's say this. Our theme verse for this quarter has been, let us do all things decently and in order. We talked about what that means earlier in the lesson. But as we go into the next quarter, let's mention this fact. Order is based on truth. And truth is absolute. Now I want you to understand what I mean by that. You can rely on truth 
You cannot rely on me. And for various reasons. I might lose my mind. I might begin to talk totally out of my head. That could happen. But more than that, I might be wrong. I have been plenty of times. There have been plenty of times in the last 40 years, and I've preached most of those 40 years, that I've taught something, believed it, and taught it with all vigor and resolute, only to have to come back and say, you know how I went home and I studied and I found this verse, this passage, this thing, and... I don't think I was right in what I said last week. It doesn't bother me to do that. And the reason it doesn't bother me to do that is because it's not important. I'm not important. This is. And the only thing that is important is that I get it right. Not that I've always been right. That's the truth for all of us. Truth is absolute. It doesn't change. Whether I know what's in here... Or I don't know what's in here. It's in here. Truth is absolute. And that's the way I need to see things. Now, to go further with that, an appeal has to always be made to the truth. Or the canon, you remember the word. The rule. Like a ruler. A spiritual ruler. That's where we make our appeal. Every generation has got to do that. Every generation has to recognize the standard, the norm. And has to go back to it. And know why they do what they do. Or else you'll get further and further away and you'll not know why you do what you do. As we talked about earlier. We don't measure ourselves, 2 Corinthians 10. We don't dare be a group of people who measure what we do and the acceptability of what we do by the fact that we all agree to do it. We would not dare be people who do that. But we would rather be people who all agree to go to the Word of God And the acceptability be based on that truth. And if I'm wrong, then I'm wrong. You know, I've been wrong before. Have no doubt, if God gives me blessing to live longer, I will be wrong again. But God is not wrong. The truth is absolute. Finally, to say this. Anything short of doing that leads to chaos. To disorder. And it leads to people not knowing what they should do and not knowing why they do what they do. And so it leads to everyone's opinion, everyone's feeling about whatever it is being absolutely equal. And that's true. It is. Your opinions are just as good as mine. You're equal to me. I'm equal to you. But we are not equal to the Son of God. His rule is absolute. And so we make our appeal to that. God is not the God of of disorder. If we were all running around and we were all saying what we wanted and what we thought and how we felt, that would be total disorder. Because I assume there must be, what, 125 people at least in here this morning? And I will guarantee you, I will promise you, and you know this to be a fact, that we could find something there would be 125 different opinions on. That's life. That's normal. But we're not talking about those things. We're talking about what the Lord wants. He brings order, as in all the churches of the saints, according to truth. He is the God of order, of unity, of peace. Order. 
in my church. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you listen to this sermon and you say, you know, the takeaway that I get from this sermon is that you believe Jesus is everything. And you're right. And if you believe in Him, as Edward was talking about earlier in the the Lord's Supper, you believe what He has done for you, the sacrifice that He's made, that the Father has made, and all of that so that you could be forgiven of your sins. If you believe that, and you're willing to confess, I believe in this Son of God who did this for me. And you're willing to repent. And repentance is not just a statement you make. I repent of my sins. It is a lifetime commitment to grow, and to change, and to do whatever it takes to bring your life in harmony with what Jesus wants you to do. And if this morning you'll be baptized, you'll be baptized to wash away your sins, because that is what the Lord has said, this is what I want you to do, And what will happen when you do that is my blood will wash away every sin that you've ever committed. And then you'll start a life where you will struggle and you will repent and you will change. And sometimes you will have to say, I've done wrong, please forgive me. And the blood of Jesus Christ will wash your sins away yet again. If you're here this morning and you need to do that, we beg you to please come. Why on you?